0: This is Radio Free Mormon, on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Sunstone 2023, return and report. This is my report from Sunstone of 2023. I had a great time going to Utah to spend time with friends and family and make a presentation at Sunstone on Saturday, July 29th. But that is not where the story begins. The story begins with flying down to Utah on Monday, July 24th. I was in the company of my girlfriend, Wendy. We flew down to Utah on Monday late. We were very, very lucky to be able to stay at my good friend, Randy Bell's condo in Park City. He made those lodgings available to us for the entire week we were there. So big shout out to Randy Bell. His name will come up later on as I'm talking about our adventures in Utah. First up on Tuesday, July 25th, was a trip to Lagoon. We drove around the valley and made a number of stops to pick up three grandchildren, actually two grandchildren. One joined us later in the day at Lagoon, but three grandchildren and went to Lagoon. It was hot. In Utah. I understand that it is hotter there than usual. There's a drought going on. I get all that, but it is so hot there compared to the temperatures I'm used to up in the climate of the Pacific Northwest. The Pacific Northwest has a climate that is so moderate, it prompted Mark Twain to once say that the nicest winter he ever spent was a summer on Puget Sound. That's the place I was coming from to go to Utah, and not only is it a difference in temperature, it's a difference in altitude because I live basically on sea level and surrounded by wonderful pine trees. That's why Washington is called the evergreen state. So, not only was there a difference in temperature, there was a difference in altitude and a corresponding diminishment in the amount of oxygen in the air. So, not only was it hot, I had to try and adjust as best I could, though I don't think I ever got there in the week I was in Utah, adjust to the fact that there is less oxygen in the air in Utah than there is in Washington. At least that's the way it seemed to me. I had to stop every several steps to catch my breath. But I don't want this to sound like I'm ragging on Utah because I'm certainly not. It's a beautiful state, had a wonderful time, even with the heat and the difficulty breathing. But that all comes to play the first full day we were there on Tuesday going to Lagoon, as I say. Now, I won't tell you everything that happened at Lagoon. I will say that we ran into a couple of listeners to the show. It was very nice. They came up and introduced themselves. I believe they were a young married couple. And they wanted to say hi and express their appreciation for the show. But I learned something important about Lagoon. They have this ride there. It's called the Rattlesnake Rapids, I believe. And the nature of the ride is that you get into a big circular raft of sorts. And you can sit around on the inside bench in a circle. You're completely exposed to the elements and to the rapids and the river that you run through during the course of the ride. And at one point, there's this big waterfall with all this water streaming down and everybody else in the raft. My grandkids knew to move over into a seat that was away from the waterfall so they would not get drenched. Me, didn't have the information, didn't have the reflexes, and besides which, I was very hot, even though it was the first ride of the morning. So I took that waterfall full in the face, I opened up my arms to heaven, and I expressed my joy at being completely drenched by this water from the waterfall on the Rattlesnake Rapids ride. Here's what I learned from that experience. I spent the rest of the day drenched in water and most of it dried off but the place where it didn't dry off at all during the day was my shoes and socks and what i found out over the course of the day was that the equivalent of a seventh grade science experiment was growing between my toes for the rest of my time at lagoon so my recommendation would be that if you're going to lagoon and it's hot out and it's the summer don't make the same mistake that I made. I still had a great time. We rode some of the roller coasters. I started getting a bit queasy after the first couple of roller coasters. Wendy was right there. She ran to a store, got me a couple of Dramamine. I pounded those down and was set to go on the rest of the roller coasters with the kids. After the day at Lagoon was over, we went back to Park City to Randy's condo where we had a nice meeting with Randy his girlfriend, and also John DeLynn and Margie DeLynn were there, and we spent the evening talking and sharing stories and having generally a really, really good time, except for the fact that I was suffering, I think in retrospect, from heat exhaustion, so I was barely there at all, at least mentally speaking. All I wanted to do was prostrate myself somewhere in a horizontal position and close my eyes, and I think that probably showed during the course of the evening. So that was Tuesday, Wednesday rolled around, and Wednesday was going to be a busy day because I was going to be recording not one, but two podcasts at John DeLynn's Mormon Stories Studio in a town called Holiday, Utah. I drove down there in the afternoon and spent two hours being interviewed by John DeLynn about my recent research regarding the connections between the three affidavits printed in the Nauvoo Expositor, their connections with Section 132, with a conclusion that, that I have drawn from that, that section 132, or something very like it, must have been in existence prior to Joseph Smith's death. We ended up having a great discussion about that. It went for two hours long. I really enjoyed it. And after that podcast was over, I had about an hour, maybe a little bit less to get ready for my podcast, my regular podcast on Mormonism Live. Because once again, it was a Wednesday. Mormonism Live now has upwards of 130 shows that we've done on Wednesdays going back to December of 2020, I believe it is. And so this Wednesday night was going to be no exception, but I'm in Utah. I'm away from my studio, which is where I'm broadcasting from right now. And John DeLynn was kind enough and gracious enough to allow me to broadcast on Mormonism Live from his studio. Now, what was going on there is that we had a very special program that was scheduled. It was a groundbreaking news report about the church and its financial dealings with the Deseret Mutual Benefit Administrators, or DMBA. I'm not gonna go into all the details of that. I'm simply gonna say that that was groundbreaking. It was new information, and it was information that I happened to be privy to because I am a member of the Widow's Might organization. Most of them are anonymous and probably for good reason. I am somewhat anonymous anyway since I'm Radio Free Mormon, right? But I am a member. Now, once again, my membership and my contributions to the Widow's Might is nothing more than reading through the slide decks that they propose in order to make sure that they are simple enough to be understood By somebody like me who really doesn't know much about investments or all these different terms that they use. So if the Widow's Might team is the Avengers, I'm Ant-Man. I am the least important person and yet that's the function that I fulfill. But because I am on the team, even though I play only a very modest role on the team, I still get to know what's coming out before it's actually published because I get to review it when it's in its incipient stage. So I knew... Because of that, that this report was coming out from the Widow's Mite about the DMBA. And it was going to be a huge story. But I also knew that I wasn't going to let John DeLynn know about it in advance because I didn't want him to scoop me on the story. So here I am at John DeLynn's studio getting ready. And he's nice enough to set me up with his equipment on a different screen in order to start doing the Mormonism live. It's about 10 minutes before the show goes live. John Delin is still there. He's the only one in the studio. He's about ready to leave to go and take care of something else. And he asks me, what are you going to be doing on the show tonight? And I told him, we're going to be doing this groundbreaking story about the DMBA. And John says, what? I said this groundbreaking story about the DMBA. And I explained a few of the details. And he says, you scooped me. I can't believe you scooped me. At which point I began laughing and I turned to him and I said, not only did I scoop you, I'm scooping you from your own studio. And then I began laughing as I am wont to do. And to his credit, of course, he laughed too. So we went on, we streamed Mormonism live. John was gone by that time, but we did notice that his equipment is far superior to what either I or Bill have. And we're going to see if we can take some steps maybe to improve our equipment, to make it better, to make it more like mormon stories in the future i'm not sure if mormon stories has put up my interview with john delin by this point if not it will probably be in the next days and weeks obviously if you want to go back and look at that mormonism live you can do that on youtube at any time so that was wednesday thursday rolls around and this is going to be a tourist day ending with dinner at my daughter's house The tourist day was, well, Wendy's never been to Utah. She doesn't know much about Mormonism except what I tell her, which means that she's probably better educated about Mormonism than most Mormons out there who've been members their whole life. But she's never been to Salt Lake City, which means she's never been to Temple Square. So we decide we're going to go down to Temple Square. We'll take the tour. And when we got there, we saw the assembly hall. We went inside mercifully. It's air conditioned. It seems like every single hall they have from the assembly hall to the tabernacle to the conference center, all of them have organs and all of them have people playing the organs. And this is sort of what passes the time of day. On a Thursday in Utah is people playing organs at Temple Square. There were a lot of missionaries at Temple Square, but absolutely no elders. They were all sister missionaries, and I told Wendy that that was likely because sister missionaries would be seen as less threatening, and these are the people who are gonna be interacting on a regular basis with visitors, non-member visitors and tourists at Temple Square. What an ideal time to make a good first impression. And that burden is going to fall on the sister missionaries, which shows about how much faith the church has in the elders making a good impression on tourists at Temple Square. But the sister missionaries were very helpful. I remember stopping a couple of them and asking a question about the Salt Lake Temple, which, of course, you can barely see because it is surrounded by scaffolding. And we went over to a place which was about as close as I could get to the temple because it's all fenced off, of course. But looking through the fence and seeing the foundation of the temple. I couldn't see the temple itself, which normally you could, but I could see the foundation, which, of course, normally you can't. And I asked one of the sisters why it was that they were redoing the foundation when Brigham Young famously changed the foundation from sandstone to granite because, to quote Brigham Young, This temple needs to last through the millennium. And the sister, who was good-natured, said, Well, now this new foundation will allow the temple to last through the millennium. At which point I smiled and said something like, Well, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And we all had a chuckle over that, including the sister missionaries. So apparently Brigham Young had the right idea, but just not the right materials and the right technology. After he got done checking out the assembly hall and the tabernacle, We crossed the street and went to the Church History Museum where we went through sort of the diorama presentations that they have as you walk through and experience the restoration from Joseph Smith's progenitors to his first vision. They even have a nice five-minute movie in a little theater and a 180-degree curved screen that you sit in front of so you can experience the first vision with Joseph Smith. I had never seen this movie before i thought it had some things to recommend it it was very clear at the outset because they announced it at the outset that there are several accounts of joseph smith's first vision and they were going to draw upon all of the different accounts in order to make this presentation and by and large i was able to track which versions they were drawing from as they had the voice of joseph smith narrating what it was that was taking place. One of the things that I found that was interesting was there was a book, it actually isn't a book, it's a prop that's made to look like a book. You can't pick it up, but there are several pages that you can turn and these pages are very thick so that you can't tear them because they are meant to be turned by all the tourists who come in and they had the several different accounts of the First Vision. And I wanted to go to the 1832 account of the First Vision, of course, and I did so. And I took a picture of this page that they had with the 1832 account of the First Vision. So let me get my phone here and look it up because there was something interesting there that I wanted to share with you. Here it is, at the top of the page, which is titled Transcription of 1832 Account, they have this language. Lines used in the film script are identified in bold text. So what they have here is one page in which they type out the 1832 account of the first vision, and they bold the lines that are used in the film script. So of course, there were two parts of this 1832 account that I was interested in. And the first one was about Joseph Smith having already realized from his study of the Bible before he went into the grove to pray that all the churches were in a state of apostasy. And that is definitely still in there. However, it is not in bold, believe it or not, because they did not use that part in the film script. Here's where it says, I become convicted of my sins, and by searching the scriptures, I found that mankind did not come unto the Lord, but that they had apostatized, from the true and living faith, and there was no society or denomination that built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. So that part is not bolded, but the very next line is bolded where it says, And I fell to mourn for my own sins and for the sins of the world. Yes, the line right after that part did make it into the script. That part about Joseph Smith having realized before he went into the grove that all mankind had apostatized from the true and living faith, did not make it into the script. And that's probably because they use the part from the 1838 account of the first vision, where that is the whole raison d'etre for Joseph Smith going to the grove to praise, to find out which of all the churches are true, and being completely surprised when Jesus tells him, nope, there is no true church upon the face of the earth, that they all draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, etc., etc. You know the story. The second part of the 1832 account of the first vision that I was interested in was, of course, where Joseph Smith reports seeing one personage instead of two personages as he states in the 1835 and 1838 and 1842 accounts of the first vision. His earliest account, the one in his own handwriting, only mentions seeing one being. And indeed, that part is in the book that was at the church museum. But once again, it was not highlighted for some reason. Also not highlighted is where Joseph Smith says it happened in the 16th year of my age. In the 16th year of my age, not highlighted, a pillar of fire, or light above the brightness of the sun at noonday, come down from above and rested upon me. And I was filled with the spirit of God and the Lord opened the heavens upon me. And I saw the Lord and he spake unto me saying, none of that is highlighted by the way. That is not in the script for the movie. But right after we get to the saying part, it becomes highlighted. Let me read that to you again. I saw the Lord, singular, And he spake unto me, saying, and now we get the highlighted part that appeared in the script, Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee, go thy way, walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. So it was interesting to me that they were actually showing what it was they were doing, what it was they were highlighting from the 1832 account and what it was they chose not to include in the movie script. And of course, the two elements that they chose not to include in the movie script are the same two elements that they omitted in the recounting of the First Vision in the new church history called Saints. And I did an episode at RFM about the recitation of the First Vision in that volume some time ago. I thought at the time and continue to think that it might be an interesting episode just to do a script of the First Vision and highlight different things than the church highlighted In its own movie script, that might be an interesting exercise indeed if instead of omitting those parts that the church omitted and including those parts that the church included, we omit the parts that the church included and include the parts that the church omitted. Yes, that could be a very interesting movie script and it's still an idea that I'm playing around with in my mind. From there, we made our way over to the conference center where somebody else was giving an organ recital on the big organ down by the stage. There's a place in the conference center where they have a lot of paintings. I mean, there are a lot of paintings everywhere in the conference center, at least in the places where you're not actually sitting in the center itself, in the auditorium, but in all the hallways and in all the areas that you go through in order to get to the auditorium section. There's all sorts of works of art in one place There are a series of paintings, and these are the Arnold Freeberg paintings of the Book of Mormon, and they are basically done in chronological order, starting with the brother of Jared, seeing the finger of the Lord. They're these huge pictures. They're probably originals. Very, very nicely done. Very nicely displayed. And I was able to take Wendy through them and start pointing them out and briefly giving her a little synopsis of what each of the paintings was depicting in the Book of Mormon. By the time we were getting to Jesus showing up among the Nephites, the sister missionaries had joined us again, this time another pair, and I was mentioning to Wendy that this is the picture of Jesus showing up to the Nephites, the sister missionaries come up, and so I add in for them that this was not, repeat, not the original picture that was painted by Arnold Freeberg to represent Jesus coming to visit the Nephites, that actually he had done a completely different painting initially, which was rejected by the brethren because it seemed to be too specific, that Jesus was too much there, too visible. The reasons for the rejection were not all that clear, except they didn't want Jesus to be that approachable apparently, and being portrayed in such an intimate setting with his disciples and the rest of the Nephites, at least the ones who survived the cataclysm that preceded Jesus's appearance. So because of that, Arnold Freeberg was not happy, as you might imagine, went back to the drawing board and came up with this different version of Jesus appearing to the Nephites where he's this little tiny dot of light way up in the sky. And this is as he is descending. So I was able to use my phone to pull up the original picture that Arnold Freeberg had painted and showed it to the sister missionaries. They were very excited about it. They were learning something they had never heard. And so Radio Free Mormon was continuing the work of education among the Latter-day Saints and their missionaries, even at the conference center while on vacation. So that's Thursday. Once we were done there, we hopped in the car and went north to my daughter's for a wonderful evening and a great dinner that she cooked for us. The following day, Friday, was going to be a special day because Denver Snuffer had been kind enough to invite me out to dinner. And when I told him I would be there with my girlfriend, Wendy, he enlarged the invitation to include her. Denver was going to be there with his wife. I was going to show up with Wendy. It was at a really nice restaurant that Denver picked out. It's called The Cliff Pub, I think is what it's called but it was a nice enough place that I wore my coat and tie and Wendy wore the sensational looking black cocktail dress. We got there a couple of minutes late. We were scheduled to be there at 6.30. Traffic was bad. We were there a few minutes late. Denver and his wife, Stephanie, were already there. So we entered into the restaurant. We came over to their table. I said hi to Denver. He introduced me to Stephanie. I said hi to Stephanie. And I said to Stephanie in my somewhat loud RFM voice, Behind every great prophet is a woman. And there was a little bit of laughter at that. And then I added the Jim Carrey line, rolling her eyes. And Stephanie laughed and Denver laughed and I laughed and I think Wendy laughed. I don't know if anybody else laughed. But I tell this story as well as these other stories I'm going to tell you about that dinner in order to illustrate what an approachable person Denver is and also his wife is and how he does not take himself too seriously obviously he has very certain beliefs and strongly held beliefs that he's come to and that he teaches but on a personal level he does not take himself too seriously he's self deprecating and it's a very attractive quality and I sometimes wonder if that's a quality that Joseph Smith had as well and that that was something else that made people attracted to him well the evening goes on and we're having dinner and it's wonderful there's lots of conversation and we had left Randy at his condo before we left to go have my dinner with Andre, or in other words, my dinner with Denver. And Randy had told me before I left that he wanted me to ask Denver, what does Jesus look like? And I said, Randy, come on, I mean, the guy's nice enough, he's asking us out to dinner. I don't wanna be rude or anything. He says, okay, well, just ask him if you can. And I said, okay, if it fits into the conversation, I'll bring it up. Well, there was a place in the conversation where it didn't really fit, but I wanted to bring it up anyway for Randy. So I told Denver, I said, look, I got a friend. He wants me to ask you a question. I don't want to be rude or anything, but my friend wants to know, what does Jesus look like? And Denver, without really batting an eye or missing a beat, He leans forward and he starts telling me that Jesus is surprisingly tall. I said, really? How tall? He says, well, you know, like an NBA player. He's tall. He's lean. He's very well muscled. He's not somebody you would want to cross. Actually, he probably didn't use that expression (laughs) because that would have been uh, a little ironic. No, he's not somebody you want to cross. He's not someone you want to get on his bad side. That's probably more what he said, but that he was very loving and kind. But he was surprisingly tall. And I said, surprisingly tall? He says, like an NBA player. And I said, you mean like LeBron James? And he goes, yeah. And I said, so Jesus looks like LeBron James? And he corrected me, of course, at that point to say, well, no, not exactly, but he's tall. So I understood that he was tall. And then Denver use the story from the New Testament in order to illustrate Jesus's height. And he talks about the story of Zacchaeus, the short guy who Jesus is coming by. He's being thronged in a crowd. So he's in the middle of the crowd. Zacchaeus can't see him because of the crowd. So Zacchaeus climbs up this tree so he can get a view of Jesus. And for some reason, the synapses clicked in my head. And before I know it, these words are coming out of my mouth. So if Jesus was so surprisingly tall, why did Judas have to give him a kiss to identify him as the one who needed to be arrested as opposed to all the other apostles? I'm not sure that Denver had an answer ready to go on that one, but I imagine he'll be thinking it over and I'll be interested in finding out what his response is to that once he comes up with one. But you know, after the evening was over and I did have a wonderful, wonderful dinner with Denver and Stephanie. It was one of the highlights of the trip, but I'll tell you that after it was over and later that evening, I was thinking about this description that Denver had given of Jesus as being surprisingly tall, and it occurred to me that there was a scriptural precedent for that idea after all. Now, not scripture that was actually included in the Bible, but a book that was not included, and it's called The Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Peter had some popularity in early Christianity in certain areas and probably in Gnostic areas, but it fell into disfavor by the proto-Orthodox church and ultimately was deemed to be spurious and not fit for inclusion in the scriptures, in the Bible. Now, the Gospel of Peter, I had read a number of years ago when I was reading other pieces of New Testament Apocrypha, which is the broad category under which it falls. Because the Gospel of Peter is the only writing, the only Gospel, including the Gospels that made it into the Bible, that purports to give an eyewitness account of the resurrection. All the other Gospels that are in our Bible and the Gospels that are not in our Bible, if they talk about the resurrection, they have the before, they have the after, but they don't have the during. In other words, they have people taking Jesus' body, putting it in the tomb. They have Easter morning a couple of days later when they go to the tomb and Jesus is not in the tomb anymore, so it's already happened. It happened off stage, in a sense. And then they see the resurrected Jesus. But the Gospel of Peter is the only gospel that purports to give an eyewitness account of the actual resurrection itself. And that's one of the things that makes it so fascinating. Not only is that part fascinating, the description that's given in the gospel of Peter is itself fascinating in a number of respects. And one of them has to do with the fact that Jesus is described as being surprisingly tall. Let me read it to you here. This is going to be from verses 34 through 42 of the gospel of Peter. The translation is, I believe, that of Bart Ehrman, and it is from his book titled Lost Scriptures, which I just happen to have on the bookshelf in my studio, and which I pull down to read from to you. It's also important to note that the Gospel of Peter in its entirety did not survive, but there is a fragment of it which includes the account of the resurrection, and that is the account which I will read now. Early in the morning, as the Sabbath dawned, a crowd came from Jerusalem and the surrounding area, to see the sealed crypt. But during the night on which the Lord's day dawned, while the soldiers stood guard, two by two on their watch, a great voice came from the sky. They saw the skies open, and two men descend from there. They were very bright, and drew near to the tomb. The stone cast before the entrance rolled away by itself, and moved to one side. The tomb was open, and both young men entered. Continuing with verse 38, When the soldiers saw these things, they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they were also there on guard. As they were explaining what they had seen, they saw three men emerge from the tomb, two of them supporting the other with a cross following behind them. The heads of the two, in other words, the two men who had come down originally and gone into the tomb, presumably to bring out Jesus, the heads of the two reached up to the sky. So they're surprisingly tall. But the head of the one they were leading went up above the sky. So he's even more surprisingly tall. Jesus is described in the account in the gospel of Peter, as being surprisingly tall, and certainly taller than an NBA player, but tall indeed. So once again, the heads of the two reached up to the sky, but the head of the one they were leading went up above the skies, and they heard a voice from the skies saying, have you preached to those who are asleep? And a reply came, not from any of the three men who were present, tall as they might be, but from the cross that was following them. And a reply came from the cross, yes. So the cross answers yes to the voice from heaven that asked the question, have you preached to those who are asleep? But I did think it was interesting that there was an extra canonical gospel that did support Denver's assertion that Jesus was in fact, or is, and continues to be surprisingly tall. The last thing I wanna say about that evening because it was a very, very funny line from Denver is that I've mentioned that Wendy was wearing a black cocktail dress. She looked fantastic. It was a dress with straps. It was certainly not what an Orthodox Mormon would be wearing anywhere. But of course, Wendy's never been a Mormon. But we may have been about halfway or two thirds of the way through the evening and I needed to go to the restroom and I had announced that. But before I left, I said, by the way, Denver, People are always asking me, when is Denver Snuffer going to practice polygamy? And Denver looks at me, and he looks over at Wendy, and he looks back at me, and he says, probably when you're in the restroom. That was funny. I died laughing on that. Denver has a wonderful sense of humor, and so does his wife, who laughed just as hard as Denver did, and as hard as we all did. Oh, and now that I'm talking about Wendy, let me tell you something that happened with Wendy. This was in our rental car because we did a lot of driving. Obviously, if we're staying up in Park City, we've got to drive down into the valley every day. So there's a bit of a commute there. Now, Wendy has no experience in her life with Mormonism, but she does have experience in her life with the Jehovah's Witnesses because when she was young, she would go regularly to the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses with her grandparents, who were members. And for whatever reason, while we were driving, she remembered a story that had been told by one of the speakers at the Kingdom Hall when she was young. I don't know what it was that prompted her to remember this story, but here's the story as she told it to me in the rental car on her way to some place or other in Utah. See if this doesn't sound familiar. This one Jehovah's Witness lady, so the story went, a Jehovah's Witness lady was slated to go out with her companion, who's another Jehovah's Witness lady, to go from door to door doing missionary work. You've probably had the experience of having Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. Generally, there's going to be two adults. A lot of times it's two women, if it's during the day, and they are doing their missionary work because they are supposed to go out two by two which is not only biblical, it's also smart in terms of safety. Well, as it turned out this day, the companion of this one Jehovah's Witness lady was not feeling well. She couldn't make it to go door to door and do the missionary work. So really, this one Jehovah's Witness lady shouldn't have gone, but she was so faithful, so righteous, so committed to sharing the gospel of the Jehovah's Witnesses that she went by herself. So that morning, she's going along through the different neighborhoods knocking on the doors and she gets to one door and it's opened by a guy who looks pretty rough around the edges but she goes ahead and goes through her spiel she tells him all about paradise earth he's not interested in learning more about living forever on paradise earth closes a door and that's pretty much the end of the story as far as this lady goes because she just continues on knocking on doors and handing out her copies of the watchtower the story takes a dark turn however because Later that afternoon, an Avon lady is going through the same neighborhood, comes to the same door, knocks on it. The rough guy opens the door, sees there's an Avon lady there, grabs her, pulls her into his house, and brutally murders her. Well, at this point in the story, I'm telling Wendy, I think I've heard this story before. And indeed, I had, because as she continues to tell the story, the guy gets arrested for the murder of the Avon lady. For some reason, the police know about This Jehovah's Witness lady who had shown up that morning, this is the kind of squishy part of the story because why would they know about that? And why would they ask the following question? You're not supposed to ask those kind of questions about faith-promoting stories. You're just supposed to put the safety bar down, keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle, and enjoy the ride. That's the whole point. It's like a roller coaster at Lagoon. Just enjoy the ride. Don't ask questions about it. So the police are asking this murderer who killed the Avon lady, why he didn't do the same thing to the one Jehovah's Witness lady who showed up on his doorstep that morning. And the answer was, drumroll please, because there were two big men standing right behind her. Yep, that's what the murderer said. And I couldn't believe this story was being told in a Jehovah's Witness talk. I had only heard this story and variations on this story in Mormonism. So I guess the good news is that the three Nephites are not restricting their good deeds to Mormons these days, but are out and about helping out Jehovah's Witnesses as well. Part of the ecumenical effort of the three Nephites. Unfortunately, on this particular day, the goodwill and protection of the three Nephites, although extended to the Jehovah's Witnesses, did not extend to the Avon Lady. Now, I have no idea who stole what story from whom, whether the Jehovah's Witnesses stole it from the Mormons or the Mormons stole it from the Jehovah's Witnesses, or whether they both stole it from a pre-existing template that floats around out there and gets told in a variety of different religions. But I did think it was very interesting that the Jehovah's Witnesses are telling three Nephite stories without the Nephites. So that was Friday. Saturday rolls around, and now it's the big day. It's the day I'll be presenting at Sunstone starting at 2.30 in the afternoon. We get there at about 9 o'clock in the morning, and we meet a lot of people that I've never met before. I see Rebecca Biblioteca. I see Landon Brophy, and I think that's the right name of her co-host. If it's not, please forgive me. His first name is Landon. I think it's Brophy. Very, very nice fellow. We got to meet all sorts of people. Got to meet Gene Judson again and his wife, Michelle, who had done a very nice little watercolor of the Tree of Life, which I took because it was offered to me. It's a beautiful picture, and I have a special affinity for the Tree of Life because of a paper that I wrote that was published back in 1992, I think it was, with the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies on that very subject. You know, I had actually done a podcast dealing with the story behind that, and talking about the substance of that paper as well. I had it all recorded. It was about a year ago. My computer gave up the ghost at exactly the wrong time, and so I've never ever gone back to re-record that story, but I do have to do that at some time in the future because there are some interesting things about it that I want to share with you. But regardless, it's a beautiful painting that Michelle did, and it's one that I will treasure. So now it's later in the morning. It's around eleven o'clock or eleven thirty. We're out in the lobby. I'm there. I'm there with Randy Bell, who of course has joined us. He'll be presenting right after me in the afternoon. I presented on the affidavits in Section One Thirty Two, as I think I've mentioned before. And then right after me in the same room, Randy Bell presented on his research dealing with the Dartmouth connection between Hiram Smith and also Joseph Smith. He presented that on Mormonism Live a few months ago. I think he also presented it on Mormon Stories as well. So this was his chance to present it at Sunstone. So we're both there. Wendy's there. There are some other people who've come up to us. We're talking with them. And who should come walking down the hallway but Don Bradley. Now, I'm not sure if I've ever met Don Bradley before. I've certainly known him for over 10 years. We actually collaborated on a paper that ended up being published in BYU Studies, and we've talked frequently on the phone, but here I see him walking along and I say, hey, Don, how are you doing? He says, hi, RFM, how are you? And I introduce Don to Randy Bell. Now, Randy Bell's hot button issue is polygamy and specifically Joseph Smith's practice of polygamy, which he did not find out about until he was in his 50s and read the church essay on the subject. Up to that point, he had been told that The idea that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy was an anti-Mormon lie, and he had shared that with other people, that it was an anti-Mormon lie, and now he's finding the church is printing an essay saying, hey, Joseph Smith practiced it, and not only did he practice it, he practiced it in ways that Randy found especially abhorrent. So this is his hot-button issue. The reason, of course, that's of significance is because Don Bradley did all that research for Brian Hale's three-volume book on the documents about Joseph Smith's polygamy. And not only that, but it was through that process that Don Bradley ended up coming back to the church that he had previously left. So once Randy had heard that much, he asks Don Bradley face to face So you came back to church to follow a guy who diddled 14 year old girls, and you're okay with that. At that point, I sensed a little bit of tension growing between Randy and Don Bradley. <laughs> And Don Bradley was trying to explain to him what it was he thought. Now, at this point, I was diverted in my attention away to these other people who were right there, but on a different side of me. And by the time I turned back, which I swear was only like a minute later, not even a minute, I saw Don Bradley shaking Randy Bell's hand in a very aggressive way and turning around and walking in the other direction. So it was apparent to me that things had gone even further downhill after I had turned my attention elsewhere. Randy Bell now turns to me, puts his hands out to his side, and says with a big grin, he couldn't answer my questions. (laughs) And he said it loud enough, of course, that Don heard him, immediately whips around, comes marching back to Randy and says, no, it wasn't that I couldn't answer your questions. It's that you wouldn't listen to the answer I was trying to give to your questions. So Randy says, okay, 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 look, you go ahead and say whatever you want and answer the question, but then you got to listen to me say whatever I want. And Don said, okay. So Don started talking about his story and why it is that he thinks Joseph Smith is a complex character. He doesn't think that everything he did was good. I inserted myself only to underscore the fact to Randy That Don Bradley is not your typical TBM. That yes, he believed Joseph Smith practiced polygamy, but he doesn't think that that was one of his finest moments. In fact, he doesn't even think that that was given to him of God. And the other thing I inserted into the discussion, and I told Don, please correct me if I have this wrong, but Randy, I'm pretty sure that Don does not even believe that the LDS Church is the only true church on the face of the earth. It doesn't believe that specific claim. And once I'd gotten those two elements into the conversation, I think that things relaxed considerably between the two. But here I am looking at two friends of mine in the lobby of the American Expo Center in Sandy or wherever it was that we were having Sunstone. I think that's the name of it. But two friends meeting, I introduced them and immediately they start fighting because I really thought they were going to throw down at one point and the fists were going to start flying. I'm glad that didn't happen. I feel like I threw myself in the middle in order to prevent that. And then, and then we're going to go to lunch because there's a Texas roadhouse not too far away. Wendy's dying to go to the Texas roadhouse. It's a fine place. I enjoy it myself. But we say, why don't we all go to lunch? Wendy and I go out to the parking lot. We get in our rental. We drive over to the Texas roadhouse. We get there and Randy is already pulling In and Wendy is really good at recognizing cars, she identifies people by their cars. She said, Oh, there's Randy's car, he's already here. And we see Randy getting out of the driver's seat, and much to our astonishment, who do we see getting out of the passenger seat but Don Bradley? So they've driven over together now. And I find out later from Randy Bell that he's considering hiring Don Bradley to do research for him on. The Dartmouth connection. So although it got off to a rocky start, I was very happy with the way things turned out vis-a-vis Randy Bell and Don Bradley. And I hope that they have a fruitful collaboration ahead of them. We got back in the afternoon, we set up for the show, I did my presentation, I expect it will be available at Sunstone. I've now done this presentation on several different platforms. I did it on my own platform at Radio Free Mormon, I did it on Mormonish, I've done it on Mormon Stories. So I just took about a half hour to, to lay out the basic facts of my presentation at Sunstone and then Randy took an hour or so to give his presentation about the Dartmouth Connection. I remember in my opening comments, I addressed the audience and I mentioned how hot it is, especially for a boy who's from Washington State at sea level to be here at Utah in the middle of summer with temperatures over 100 degrees and then saying to the audience, I'd like to welcome you to Sunstroke. And I was very flattered at the beginning of my comments or right before my comments began to have Sandra Tanner walk through the back door and come walking down the center aisle looking for a place to sit. And I said to the audience, all rise, and came walking down off the platform and walked up to Sandra and gave her a big hug. I am amazed at what that woman and her husband have accomplished in the decades that they have been involved in studying the LDS Church and in publishing articles, newsletters, and books about the LDS Church that have stood the test of time and she has lived to see herself and her work and the work of her husband, Gerald. Vindicated by the LDS Church itself because in the 60s and 70s when they were writing their books, the Tanners were writing their books and doing their publications, they were smeared by the LDS Church as dealing in anti-Mormon lies and now the tables have turned, the church has been forced to the transparency table. The church has been drugged there, kicking and screaming. And because the information was becoming so accessible now via the internet, information regarding true, accurate, real church history, they had to release the essays on their own church website. And with those essays, they tacitly admitted that the majority of things the Tanners had been saying for decades were not actually anti Mormon lies, but were in reality the true history of the LDS church. And I'm so glad that Sandra at least got to live to see the day that her life's work has been vindicated by the people who were calling her a liar for decades. So that was Sunstone, the next day was Sunday, I met once again with family, including the grandkids and my daughter and her significant other, and we roamed the streets of Park City and we went into shops and into art galleries, ending the day with a nice Italian dinner at a restaurant on Main Street. We had to go to bed early because we had to get up early in order to get ready to go to the airport. Our flight was a red eye out of Salt Lake City. We went down to the airport and our rental turned it in, went through security, got up to our gate where all the people were waiting for the flight. And we saw eight to 10 young men, white shirts, ties, tags, definitely Mormon missionaries. And I told Wendy, well, Wendy, we don't have a thing to worry about on this flight back to SeaTac. She says, why? I said, because we got Mormon missionaries on the plane and God is not gonna let anything happen to this plane if it's got Mormon missionaries on board. And indeed, such proved to be the case. So that is my return and report on Sunstone 2023. I had a fantastic trip and a wonderful time in Utah and at Sunstone. I wanna thank all the good people who made that such an enjoyable experience and a trip that will long be remembered. Well, that's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio 3 Mormon, signing off the air.